you could open up the first Corinthians chapter four. Uh, we're going to look at verses eight through twenty-one. And also, while you're opening up, buckle up. This is difficult. <laughs> this is going to be a tough one, but I like tough. This will be fun together. Have, have any of you ever babysat a spoiled brat? Raise your hand if you've ever babysat a spoiled brat. Jill, have you ever taught any spoiled brats? I coached a whole team of them for t-ball one year. I had 25 on my t-ball team, and it was like chasing a pack of Siamese cats. It was not fun. At practice, they always wanted to bat first. They never wanted to pick up a ball if you asked them to, and they would always be listening and doing something else. Well, my brother-in-law knew how to fix them a little bit because they all wanted to bat first. He would say, all right, how many of you want to bat first for sure? And they all would say, I do, I do. They'd raise their hand, I do said, all right, I want you to line up on home plate and begin running the bases. So they'd run the first, second, third, and home. And then he said, okay, here's what I want. The last person standing gets the bat first. And they would run half of the practice. It was fantastic. Half of them would be on the ground laying down, complaining how hard it is. And then the parents would pick them up, and the parents would say, wow, I love it when my kids go to practice. They are so compliant when they get home. You guys are wonderful coaches is what they'd tell us, because we would drive them to exhaustion. Spoiled brats are no fun. And when they turn into adults, it gets even worse. The archetype for a spoiled brat is a girl by the name of Veruca Salt. Veruca Salt was on that fantastic movie, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. A lot of good things can be learned by that movie. Her dad owned a nut business, and she was spoiled rotten. I mean, spoiled rotten. One day, Willy Wonka is showing the people through the uh, chocolate factory, and they came to this area where these golden geese would lay golden eggs, and she wanted one. And I've got the script of what she said. Here's what Veruca said. I want my geese to lay gold eggs for Easter. And her dad said, it will, sweetheart, at least 100 a day. Anything you say. And by the way, what? I want a feast. I won't sing this song. You have to kind of imagine me singing it. Well, honey, you ate before you came to the factory. I want a bean feast. Oh, one of those. Cream buns and donuts and fruitcake with no nuts. So good you could go nuts. You can have all those things when you get home. No. Now. I want a ball. I want a party. Pink macaroons and a million balloons and performing baboons. Give it to me. Now. I want the world. I want the whole world. I want to lock it up all in my pocket. It's my bar of chocolate. Give it to me now. And she says more things, but she ends by saying, I don't care how. I want it now. I don't care how. I want it now. And of course, the, she fell into the garbage chute and died in the incinerator. She didn't die, but she went to the incinerator. But the Oompa Loompas finished by saying, Oompa, Oompa, Doompity, Da. If you're not spoiled, you will go far. You will live in happiness too like the Oompa Loompa Doompa Doompities do. It's very wise advice. But if you notice in her words, the main driving factor that motivates her and all spoiled brats is immediate satisfaction. Give it to me now. I want it now. Not only do spoiled brats think they deserve special treatment, 
but they want all the benefits without the sacrifice. Our country is dealing with an epidemic of spoiled bratism right now. We call them looters. They are nothing more than spoiled brats grown up. Well, today in our study, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to study how Paul saw the Corinthians as really spoiled children. They are spoiled children. And he's going to give it to them. As one commentator has said, Paul is going to go right to the heart of the matter. He's going to use sarcasm and biting irony to help them see who they really are. I think this is one of the most human and, I dare say, transparent portions of Scripture Paul ever wrote. He's upset. He's exasperated because people who are Christians aren't living like Christians. They're living like spoiled brats. So if you could stand, we're going to read chapter 4, 8 through 14, and as we study this, I'm going to ask you to ask the question, am I spoiled? Starting in verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse or garbage of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you or to warn you as my beloved children. You may be seated. The language is kind of tough, so we're going to work through it. It's actually in the Greek, it's sarcasm, it's irony. Irony is when you say something, but you're meaning something completely different. And Paul is writing according to verse 15, for though you have countless guides in Christ, You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He loves these people. He planted the church. But since the planting of the church and the writing of 1 Corinthians, some false teachers have come in. They're called super apostles. And started deluding these people, making them to believe they are greater than they were. And the culture around them was one built on success and becoming a victor. And so... You can hear Paul's sarcasm. In verse 8, he's saying, Already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. The NLT says it like this. You think you already have everything you need. You think you are already rich. So in their minds, the Corinthian church thought they were better than Paul's teaching of Christ and him crucified. One writer said, The Corinthians placed themselves either beyond the cross as though they were already raised from the dead or above the cross as though suffering was well beneath them. This is called having an identity crisis. That's the title, an identity crisis. They have forgotten who they are. 
Instead of seeing themselves as servants of the Lord, which we studied two weeks ago, they're stu- stewards, servants. They don't see themselves as, that way. They were special lords and ladies, and they should be served. Instead of being stewards or butlers in the master's home, doggone it, they own the place, my home. And so they expected to be treated the way they wanted to be treated because they were spoiled. Gordon Fee, the commentator, said this about having an identity crisis as a Christian. It is possible to be in Christ. That means having the Spirit alive in you. But miss His presence altogether. What he means by that is when you forget who you are, that we're stewards, servants, It is easy to forget that God is God. We are called to be part of the church to worship Jesus, not to have Jesus worship us. It's a big difference. And a lot of Christians don't see the difference. He is Lord. We are not. And when we think we are no longer to honor Him as Lord, we look like spoiled children, like the Corinthians did in this passage. Daddy, I want it now. Christians who have an identity crisis believe it is God's job to serve them. So part of the problem, I'm going to say, is an eschatological problem. It's errant eschatology. Theologians use this word eschatology to mean the end times or the end of the world. Eschatology means what is going to happen when Jesus comes back and when he brings in his actual kingdom. The Bible teaches that Jesus is going to be king on the throne over the whole earth, specifically in the city of Jerusalem. He's going to have an iron scepter, and all the nations are going to come and bow before him physically. But the time of when that happens is often misunderstood, and with the Corinthians, it was completely misapplied. The proper view of eschatology or the end is called already not yet already means that God's spirit is already alive and well in our hearts that means Jesus's spirit the Holy Spirit who is same in essence with Jesus rules over our heart so Jesus is Lord by faith and every person who believes by faith as Jesus as king. Listen to what Jesus said in 1720-21. The kingdom of God will not come with observable signs. That's a very interesting statement. Nor will people say, look, here it is, or look, there it is. For you see, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is within you. He lives in you right now. If you're a Christian, God's spirit is in you. I know you don't see it. I always wondered if How do I find it? If I cut myself in half, would I be able to see it? It's a weird reality, but God who created the earth lives in you through the Spirit. And that's already happened by faith. However, the physical and visible reign of Jesus is not yet. Not yet. So not yet expresses the reality that we are living in a broken world. This is not the way it should be. And our job is to help people get saved out of it. That is why Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 33, in me you have peace. In this world, 
you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. The world means the fallen system, which is corroded by sin and ruled by selfishness. And that's the norm. That's the way things are. As a result, there will be difficult days, and we must not assume we've already arrived. Heaven isn't here yet. It's pretty obvious. Look at COVID. Kind of obvious. So, we still have to deal with the flesh in this already-not-yet stance. We must not love the things of this world, but love Christ. And the hard part is the spoiled brat still lives in us. So what is it like when not yet is confused with already like the Corinthians did? So what they did is they confused these two terms. They thought it already was. They really believed the visible kingdom of God had arrived and they really were ready to rule on earth. That's what the super apostles would teach. Many of the millennial promises in the Old Testament talk about ruling, reigning, feasting on great feasts and tables. Even Jesus said in Luke 19, 16 and 17, he talked about the parable of talents. And he said the person who invested 10 talents, well, he said this, because you've been faithful in very little, you will have authority over 10 cities. That means they're going to rule. We are going to rule and reign with them. So when Paul came and God was authenticating or legitimizing his ministry through miracles, which the Corinthians were seeing, they assumed that meant the actual kingdom had come. And so like spoiled children, they started to believe they deserved glory. So the Corinthians were Christians who began to believe the millennial kingdom has arrived. That's how it's been confused in them. A lot of people still confuse it. As if glory is deserved, material riches should be ours, and the world should be easy. That should be the new norm. They wanted it now. And some people still do. Like the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3.17, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. And then he says, but you don't realize you're poor, blind, and naked. So Paul isn't having it. So if you look at verse 8, 4 verse 8, he says this, Already you have all you want, sarcasm. Already you have become rich. Without us, you become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. What he means by this is he's saying, basically, I would love it if God's kingdom were here. I would love it because life would be wonderful. But as it was back then, it still is today. Life is not easy for the truly godly people wasn't for the apostles, and it won't be for those who desire to live a godly life, 1 Timothy 4.8. Did you know in present-day church, there still are movements that believe the not yet is already here? I'll give them real quick. And I would call these movements spoiled Christianity. One is called the health and prosperity gospel. It's the idea that with enough faith, you'll have abundance all the time. Like Joel Osteen's best-selling book, you can be living your best life now. And you say it smiling and wink a little. Another, another organization is the Name It, Claim It movement. 
Creflo Dollar, one of the leaders in that movement, says when we pray, believing that we've already received what we're praying, God has no choice but to make our prayers come true. If I just name it and believe it, he's going to give it. See, he's serving us. We are the kings, he's our servant. Then you have what's called this whole movement called the Later Rain Movement. They had it in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and now it's starting to take hold again. And the Later Rain Movement teaches that as the end of the age approaches, the eschatological time clock is winding down. Overcomers will arise. They'll be called Joel's army. Joel visions, they'll see visions, and they'll be drunk on the Spirit, where the manifest sons of gods will show up, and they'll have the same abilities as Jesus, including the ability to change their physical location or speak any language they want. They will be so filled with the Spirit, they will be able to de- perform divine healings and miracles at will because they're now the new lords of the earth. And then there's one, move, one movement right now which is really catching on. It's called the Bethel Awakening. started in California's Bethel. I talked about this four weeks ago. But the pastor there teaches what's called triune salvation. He believes the gospel touches the whole man, spirit, soul, and the physical body. He even said... That Jesus destroyed the power of sin, sickness, and poverty in his work on the cross. And so we should be without sin, sickness, and no more poverty. Now that we're restored to our original purpose, shouldn't we expect anything less? So in other words, I would call these hyper-Pentecostal groups who believe that the time is now for us to flourish to claim our royal inheritance, to triumph. And so all of these movements are underneath the banner of triumphalism. Christian life should be characterized by victory after victory without a shred of weakness and suffering. And if you have weakness and suffering, you probably aren't living by faith. Believe it or not, they got this idea of triumph from not only this passage in Scripture, but also another passage in 2 Corinthians, because Paul talks about the Roman triumph parade. However, it doesn't mean what we think it means. Let me explain. Here's the Roman triumph. This is what it looked like. So basically, the Roman triumph was a ceremony where after a Roman general would conquer, so let's say he went into... Germania and would conquer the Goths. He would take all the spoils of war with the prisoners and then parade them through the streets of Rome behind his chariot. One writer says prisoners' hands were bound behind their back. They were whipped and they were insulted and abused. And the purpose was humiliation to show that they were defeated by the great Roman army. Sometimes at the end of the parade, it would end up in a, a temple, a Roman temple, where the prisoners would be murdered. Sometimes those same prisoners might be made into gladiators, where they'd have to fight into the arena until death. Some of those prisoners were turned into slaves. Whatever the case, the Roman triumph was to prove that Rome was the victor, and the prisoner was their property. So in 4.9, Paul's going to talk about this, but he talks about it in a different way. Please listen to what he says. 
For I think that God has exhibited us, that means put us on parade, God has put us on parade, us apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Wait a minute. Oh, so God is the victor and we are the prisoners underneath his rule. Yes. This is not a triumph of glory, but of humiliation and defeat. Christianity is not one of success and victory. It is um, servanthood to our new king, Jesus. That's different. And often it is seen in weakness and suffering. So instead of having not yet become already, we must learn to live in the true reality of the not yet. We are living in the not yet. So what is the reality of the not yet? Paul gives us, as one writer said, the the straight scoop of what it's like living as a godly person in verses 9 through 13. And I have to be honest with you, it's, it's not pretty. It's not living your best life now It's not tasting the fruits of the millennial kingdom. It's not even being rich and not needing a thing. The apostles, pastors, teachers, godly Christians have become scum. It's a terrible word. Look at verse 13b. Listen to how Paul writes this. We have become... And are still, so that phrase, are still, means this is the present time we are living. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse, the garbage. The idea is after you sweep a room, you take whatever's picked up and throw it in the back to burn. That's what Paul is saying we are. Wow. We are present-day castaways. So... What he does is going to describe scum. What does it look like being scum? First is that we're spectacle. Look at 9b. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles, last of all like men sentenced to death, because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels, meaning demons and angels are watching you, and to men. So like prisoners being marched through the streets of Rome while people come to gawk, look, and even laugh and spit upon, we are being paraded through this world while people watch. Christians are being watched by angels. You could see that in Job. Remember when Satan went to God and said, oh, look at Job. You're taking good care of him. What if he had a bad life? What then? We are being watched by the world, and we're being watched by our neighbors. We're designed to be watched, actually. Hebrews 12 also says we're being watched by a great cloud of witnesses. Those people who have gone before us are like in an arena watching now us carry the torch that they left to us. God is watching us. He's fascinated by us. Especially how you're handling suffering. Do you whine and complain or do you trust God? I think the world, personally, I think the world is dying to see a real Christian live well. But it's hard. And the next three letters are Y. And C stands for we are clowns. Look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake. 
Then he's kind of using irony. Oh, but you are so wise, Corinthians. But we apostles, we leaders, we godly people, we're fools. Soren Kierkegaard, who was a theologian in the 1800s, he told this story. And listen to the story. So imagine a fire breaks out backstage in a theater. At that time, a clown happens to be walking down the street. He sees the smoke billowing out. So he runs in the theater, goes to the front of the stage to warn the public, there's fire, there's fire. They think it's a joke because he's a clown and they applaud. <laughs> Ew, that's funny. He repeats it. There's fire, but the acclaim is even greater. Yay, that's really funny. And then Soren Kierkegaard writes, but I think that's just how the world will come to its end. To general applause from the worldly wise who believe our message is a joke. We are a joke. I can personally remember a couple years after I became a Christian, I was meeting with some of my old college roommates who were wondering why I am taking Christianity so seriously. I told them because I believe Jesus died on the cross and I believe hell's real. And they said, you just are, you're too serious. That's what they said. Take it too serious. So one happened to be a lawyer. And I asked him, I said, what would you tell me if I got in trouble with the law, I went to you for advice, and I ignored it? What would you say to me? And he said, you'd be a fool. You'd be stupid. Because that could either get you thrown in jail or paying a heavy fine. I turned to my other friend who happened to be a stockbroker. I said, let's say I had a lot of money and I went to you for advice, and then you gave me your advice and I ignored it. He would say, that would be foolish, because I know the market, and you'd be a fool not to listen to me. And then I said, I have been studying eternal things and I have a master's degree concerning those things. What happens if you ignore me? They said nothing because to them, I'm nothing more than a juggling clown. Oh, <laughs> that gospel thing? That's really cool and funny. That's how people see our message, even to this day. There's a lot of you that come in here and go, when will that guy stop talking? You stands for underrated. Paul says in verse, into verse 10, we are weak. Oh, but you are strong. That's the biting irony, sarcasm. That's how it should be read. You are held in honor. Hey, but we're in disrepute. Disrepute means we are not honored at all. People don't really value us. But oh, you Corinthians, oh, you're so successful and honored. At that day, these super apostles would come in and they would teach success. How to be, you know, make a million kind of thing. How to be an important person, win friends and influence people. But in Paul, they only saw a traveling vagabond. Truthfully, no one really respects a person who lives sold out for Jesus. It's not lucrative. Here is Paul, the apostle, 
Throughout the book of Corinthians, he's being set aside because more impressive speakers came to town, because success sells. A pastor or an on-fire saint is not the guy you want to talk with with your rich buddies. They're not the person you want to um, take golfing when you're trying to get an account. They're not the ones that you bring to an important meeting. Actually, I tried... My daughter, they're having a career day. I said, hey, ask your teacher if a pastor could come in and talk about their career. And she said, I don't think they'll want a pastor talking about their career. Okay. They used to, but, uh, you know, church and state thing, you know. They don't want pastors to give their opinion on current affairs on Facebook. Often I'll give my opinion on current affairs and people will instant message me and say, you're, you know, you're a pastor. You shouldn't be, you should only be concerned with the gospel. Oh, the gospel doesn't impact real life. That's right. And then the last one is M, is mistreated. Paul was mistreated pretty harshly. Look at verse 11. Through the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed. Buffeted and homeless, we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. Second Corinthians, he talks about he was stoned, shipwrecked, whipped five times. Spent a night and a day in the open sea. He's poor, went naked. He didn't have it easy. But these Christians in Corinth, man, they were rich. I often tell... Um, I tell the guy, every time I hire people on our staff, specifically as pastors, I say, you will not be treated the way that people want you to treat them. And don't get mad at it. Look at how Paul says it. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Because the world lives by a motto. The world's motto is, tell it like it is. And when people are mad out there, they tell you like it is. The God's servant motto is when cursed, we get this from Jesus on the cross, when cursed, bless. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So how do we live in the already while moving towards the not yet? What is the path to glory or the footsteps to glory? Paul says we shouldn't be surprised by suffering nor the reality of the world we're living in. That's what verse 14 is about. I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. It's going to be hard, but I want to warn you. That's what he means. It's like Gandalf talking to Bilbo. I'm not here to harm you. I want to help you. And Paul is saying it's tough out there. And he's saying not only that, we are to grow up and act like adults. That's what verse 15 is about. For I thought you have countless guides in Christ, guides to lead, but I'm your father. I become your father in Christ through the gospel. So my beloved children, I want to grow you up. Become mature. Don't be spoiled. And people don't like to tell, hear the truth. It's hard. It's hard to live in this world. It's hard to admit all the brokenness around us. On Friday, when I learned that the high school football was postponed, I'm telling you, it broke my heart for coaches, parents, students, cheer, band, everybody. It means something to people. It's hard. Any kind of suffering and trial is hard. I wish it didn't have to be this way, but sin has broken in for thousands of years, and this world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not yet. 
As much as I want the kingdom of God to be realized right now, the not yet remains. COVID, I believe, is a wake-up call that this is not our real home. I was eating lunch with my dear friend Dave on Friday. And his wife is suffering under ALS, and it is bad. Dave made this comment. He said, it sure seems like Satan is having a heyday. And as I contemplated it, a thought has been coming in my mind, and I told Dave this. I said, maybe this isn't Satan attacking. Maybe this is God refining. You know how easy it is to be a Christian when life is roses? But when COVID comes, let's see who stays. I read an article that said one-third of Christians around the United States have stopped attending church altogether because of COVID. Question, were they really attending church before it came? So listen to what Paul says in 8.17. And if you're children, then you're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. That means you're going to rule with them, provided, provided, you will rule with them, provided that you suffer with them in order we may be glorified with him. So Paul ends and he basically gives advice. He gives advice for those who hear, who have soft hearts. And he says in verse 16, look what he says, I urge you then imitate me. That means bear up under pressure. Find God during your weakness and pray. And then in verse 18, he's going to talk to the arrogant. Arrogant are hard-hearted people. And he says, be careful of them because they're going to be causing divisions. They're going to separate they want people to join them in their cause, and they will never be happy till they get what they want. Which heart do you have? I want to finish with this story. There's a scientist who liked to observe human behavior in the 1800s, and he was observing a family at home. He's observing this two-year-old boy. He said the two-year-old, normally a quite obedient little boy, was having an attack of stubbornness a disease endemic to the species. Still, it was surprising to see such a severe case in one of such tender years. His mother had asked the lad to do something, but he was much too absorbed in his own activities to take time out for that. The father watched as the mother went over to impress on the little boy the importance of minding his parents promptly, to which he responded, with a right hook to the jaw of his mother. The father, realizing that his son's behavior was completely unacceptable, who said he needed to intervene so that the tiny boxer wouldn't continue on, continued to give him the worst spanking of his young life. Remember, this is the 1800s, so don't blame me about the word spanking. After which he was sent to his room. Ten minutes later, the child was back, tears still streaming down his cherub face, and crawled sobbing into the father's lap as he put his chubby little arms around his neck. What followed is one of the warmest and tenderest memories this observer ever had. What the child says was not, I'm sorry, Dad, or I won't do it again. But with a wisdom and perception far beyond his years, the child said, I love you, Dad. That's the point. That's the goal even of difficulty. That's worship. 